Welcome back, my friends. As we continue to study this extraordinary Maimer, Va'at Tetzava, the Rebbe's parting teaching, regarded by many as his proverbial Tzavo, last will and testament, the marching orders for us to move th forward through the threshold into a new era, the age of Mashiach, Emir Hashem. Before we begin part three, I want to mention that this segment is dedicated in honor of Bracha Bas Shmuel's first Yorzeit, which falls today, Gimel Tamas. This is dedicated by her children, Debbie and Victor Janowski, and Len Karakowski and his family. She was a kind and a caring mother, a grandmother and a great-grandmother, who really persevered in maintaining Yiddishkeit in an atmosphere and environment that was, shall we say, less than conducive in a small town in Canada. May her neshama have an aliyah, may she be a good to better for her children, grandchildren, and their progeny. So part three. We have already gone through this description of Moshe Rabbeinu's spiritual mission and mandate. He's the nexus force, the mechanism of connection that enables the Jewish people's innate bond with Hashem to be brought forth. In doing so, Moshe Rabbeinu not only contributes to the welfare of the nation, but symbiotically, he too is elevated. In part two, we analyzed the idea of the shepherd that Moshe Rabbeinu was. He was faithful, but he is also in truth, a shepherd of faith, nurturing and developing the faith that is innate and intrinsic so that it be brought forth in a meaningful, in a very personal and uplifting way. We identified this notion of Moshe Rabbeinu's function as being limited not only to the historic Moshe, but in fact to the extension of Moshe in every generation. And we highlighted the notion of difficult times birthing heroic Yiddishkeit activities. Both of these ideas are talked about in the Mimer that our Rebbe is explaining and elaborating on. And the question, of course, becomes, which is it? Well, we'll continue to explore this very question as we go down both seeming disparate paths, the circumstances induced heroism, or the spiritual medal brought forth by a true Torah leader, a Moshe Rabbeinu in his time. In the end, we will discover that they are not two paths, but rather mutually inclusive and complementary. But let us continue. Pedic Dalad. Part three of our segment begins with the fourth chapter of the Maimer Vata Tetzave. Vihine. So now, Habir Beposuk Vata Tetzave, the elaborate explanation that we have found presented on the verse Vata Tetzave. This is lifted, of course, from a discourse of our Rebbe's Rebbe, of the previous Rebbe, in his discourse 
which we've referenced and talked about in the previous segments of this class, of this series. So that beer comes behemshech in consonance, or really perhaps in continuation, lahamavur betchilas to that which is developed, a thesis developed in the outset of that particular discourse. And the, the thesis that the Mimer presents is an exposition on the words of the scroll of Esther, Megillat Esther, in the ninth chapter, the 23rd verse states, V'kibel ha-Yehudim et asher hechelu la'asot. Ha-Yehudim, the Jewish people, accepted upon themselves, or affirmed, if you will, that which they had begun to do. Who, so the subject of this verse, this acceptance or affirmation of that which had already been begun, who shekiblu ma'ashahechelu, that they affirmed, fully accepting upon themselves, that which they had initiated, behazman the matan Torah, at the extraordinary time of mass revelation at Sinai, when the Torah was given. Now this idea that we began a process, started a journey at Matan Torah, at Sinai, when Hashem, when Almighty God actually revealed Himself to us in mass yet in personal fashion, that this began a process, a process that only reached fruition, that only climaxes and completes in the time of Purim. So this idea that's the meaning of the biblical phrase hechelu, the beginning, the initiation. And in the days of Achashverosh. And specifically here the Rebbe emphasizes not in the post-deliverance of Purim, not in the post-miracle of salvation, but at the time when the decree of Haman was in full sway. Namely, that we, the Jewish people, were slated for genocide. Our nation was supposed to be annihilated. All of us. In one day. And during that period, at that time, when we exhibited faith under fire, that represented the affirmation or our full acceptance of that which we had begun to absorb at the time of Matan Torah. This teaching of the Friedrich Rebbe actually is very much in keeping or along the lines of a teaching of our sages, which is found in Masechet Shabbat on page 88, side A. It's called the Sugya of Matan Torah. There isn't a Masechet, a tractate called Matan Torah, but in the tractate of Shabbat, there are several pages in which we deal with the giving of the Torah, which, by the way, took place on Shabbat. So there, the Gemara says, al hapasuk, on a different verse. The Gemara's drasha, or exposition, is on verse 27 of that chapter. The Friedrich Rebbe's novel approaches that the same idea can be read into verse 23, a previous verse. So our sages tell us, 
al haposuk on the verse, which is 27 of the ninth chapter. That the Jewish people affirmed and accepted the language of our sages in their commentary is Kimu They affirmed that which they had already accepted. In other words, that the notion of prior to mass revelation. Because at the time of mass revelation, we were not in a position to make decisions or say yay or nay. We were actually overwhelmed, like a bride swept off her feet. In fact, there's this teaching that the Jewish people, like a bride who got cold feet, had second thoughts. It says God held the mountain over them as if it were some kind of dome. And he said, you're going to take my Torah, aren't you? Well, because if not, you know, this mountain that I'm suspending above you will simply settle comfortably upon your heads. Incidentally, that's a midrash, not a verse, not scripture. And it doesn't have to be taken literally. It's a metaphor. The Alter Rebbe in Lakut Torah explains that that metaphor means that Hashem wowed us. The things we saw, heard, and felt didn't enable us to have a really uh, a free choice, if you will. We were swept off our feet. But when we said Nase, and only afterwards said Nishma, we were in a position in which we still had the ability to choose. Revelation hadn't begun. Yes, it's true, we had been taken out of the land of Egypt with many miracles, but at the same time, we still were capable of behaving inappropriately. <laughs> Ask me how I know. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. I know because we did. We did. We, we fetched and complained many times during the course of that rehabilitative seven weeks from leaving Mitzrayim to standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was only when we arrived at Har Sinai that we experienced this surge of united desire to receive the Torah. We all pulsated with an intense closeness to Hashem. But we still had the freedom to choose. And the fact that we encamped around that mountain in singular fashion, driven by a singular vision, fueled with a singular passion, is something of importance. Something we get credit for. That was a big deal. If we were simply mindlessly following orders, or not really plugged in, so to speak, checked out, just overwhelmed, not even knowing what we were doing, we wouldn't get credit for that. Here's a simple metaphor that you can chew on. If somebody in a drug-induced state, or maybe even an alcohol-induced state, professes love to his or her spouse, is it really meaningful? I mean, they've taken a narcotic, they're checked out, and in that state of mindlessness or state of alternate reality, they may say things that have nothing to do with what they really are feeling. So it's fun, but it's not real. We should try to experience life for real. Narcotics are for illness. Narcotics are for malaise. If somebody's in pain, 
There's no mitzvah to live with suffering. But to live with the need for a, a foreign substance to, so to speak, co-opt our heart and mind, it's ridiculous. <laughs> we're not living. We're just existing. And we're, we're watching some other chemical take over for us. That doesn't work. It's not what Yiddishkeit is about. We have no record ever of narcotics being used in the service of Hashem. Yes, there were narcotics. There is one example of it being used before somebody was executed so that they wouldn't have to suffer mentally and emotionally of what they were about to experience. That's a convicted criminal, horrible individual that gave him uh, some very powerful narcotics because the suffering is bad enough. Wine, yes, that's very different. Wine lowers inhibition, and when we, so to speak, imbibe an alcohol, in its right time, socially at a fabringen, it enables the things which are beneath the surface to actually reveal itself. It is really you. It's just <laughs> the you who's otherwise inhibited. So now that your inhibitions have been lowered, the real you is expressed. That's the literal meaning of nichnas yain so the alcohol in secrets out. It's not somebody else's secrets. They're my secrets. Oh, by the way, if you have ugly secrets, please don't drink. <laughs> Only if you have something profound or something meaningful or something special to share, but you're having difficulty expressing it, this will enable you to express yourself. And by the way, alcohol should never be enjoyed in isolation. That's counter to everything Torah represents. Why are we talking about this? Well, I'm, I'm just trying to explain to you that when the Jewish people accepted the notion of we would be Hashem's people, and there's an emphasis on hikdimu nasal and nishma, it wouldn't have been enough for us to say, I'd love to learn, and if it makes sense to me, if I can wrap my head around it, sure, I'll be ready to listen. That wouldn't be impressive. Any thinking, intelligent person who is given the opportunity to understand why something is good and then does it, doesn't get points for love or loyalty. The love, loyalty, and devotion and dedication of Yiddishkeit comes not because we proverbially buy into the program or it makes sense to us. That's called self-worship. But rather because Hashem asks us to do it and because we love Hashem and because we are loyal, because we are devoted and dedicated to God, not ourselves, even at a time that we don't really understand or cannot relate or affiliate to a Torah concept, we're still ready to do it. That's special. That was a big deal. So the Gemara says, the fact that they preceded Nasa before Nishma, that's the key here. The Matan Torah, at the time of Matan Torah, but not at the time of mass revelation, we hadn't been swept off our feet yet. It was still a decision we made. But that, despite the fact that we get credit for it, that was only the initial acceptance. At the time when we were under the jackboot of Achashverosh, who at that time was very happy to partner with his viceroy or prime minister, Haman, in plotting the annihilation of the Jewish people. Don't fool yourself. Achashverosh was no friend of the Jewish people. He was fully aware of Haman's machinations. Although later, he professes a lack of awareness to Esther. 
if you follow the narrative carefully, you even see that Achashverosh is loath to admit ever having, um, shall we say, entertained anti-Semitic sentiment. And yet, at the same time, he's not ready to rescind the decree if it makes Achashverosh look bad. Because Achashverosh was always about Achashverosh, so when Esther is wailing and crying, he says, okay, get off the floor, we'll figure this out. Not with me looking bad. And under the sway of Achashverosh, a mighty and powerful ruler who had the natural, or if you will, literal ability to liberate, annihilate the Jewish people in one day, under that kimu, under that cloud, we affirmed Masha Kiblu. So we were fully cogent, fully aware. We said Nasa, and then we said Nishma. Not only are we going to be loving and loyal, not only are we going to be dedicated and devoted, and will do, but we will also learn and study Hashem's Torah. We want to relate to it. We want to personalize this experience. And that's really special. We get a lot of credit for that. We got two crowns. I don't know what that means, but it's really special. And we were unhappy, and that's an understatement, profoundly unhappy, when we lost those halos or crowns at the time of the sin of the golden calf. So it was a really big deal, but not nearly as big, if you will, as the affirmation at the time of Purim, at the time of the Gizerah, at the time of the difficulty the faith we expressed under fire. Now the Gemara interprets or explains the words kimu v'kiblu. The Friyadikir Rebbe says that in an earlier verse, which spells it out much more clearly, v'kibel heyehudim esasher hechelu, in this way depicting Matan Torah not even as a Kabbalah, but asher hechelu, the beginnings. It's when we began to put it into motion. We began to actualize. We began to concretize our devotion in real time, prepared to do what Hashem wanted, just the beginning. It's a process. A process that unfolds over the course of centuries and only reaches maturation at the time of Gezerah Taman. So the previous Rebbe, speaking to a beleaguered Jewish community, living under the jackboot of Stalinist Soviet oppression that seeks to stamp out and destroy every vestige of faith, especially Jewish faith, says to them, isn't this extraordinary? L'cha'ayra, it would seem on the surface, hudvarpela, that this is like a, something wondrous beyond the reach of what we would call rhyme and reason. The Bimatan Torah, at the time when the Torah is giving, and we're not talking about the moment of mass revelation, we're talking about the time in which we were preparing, ready to receive the Torah, the time in which we came round Har Sinai as one, the time in which we professed our love to God in such, so palpable a way we said Nasa Vanishma. This is a time, a period, for the Jewish people that could perhaps best be termed betachlis ha'ilui, the zenith, the high point in our spiritual persona, 
in our national spiritual experience. What follows is an experiential awareness of divinity. I can't really tell you what that means. I never had such an experience. Neither have you. As I mentioned in a teaching a couple of days ago, uh, Maimonides Rambam describes this as trying to explain to a person who was born without the ability to see color. He's blind. And explain to him the beauty of color, the range of color, the spectrum of color. To explain to a person who never heard music, who can't hear, who's hearing impaired to the nth degree, entirely deaf, and explain to them the beauty of music, it's not possible because there is no frame of reference. So I don't know what this means, but I do know that it was real. And I do know that it was experienced by human beings, terrestrial beings. It was so powerful and profound an experience that eventually body and soul actually parted as a result of it. But this is where we were. Nationally speaking, we were at the highest of levels. The Neisif Lazet, in addition to the notion Shigam prior to the Torah's being given. There was a very lofty experience of divinity. What we call revelation. I don't know what that means, but it's big. Because we live without revelation. We live in the spiritual dark hole, the dark matter, that doesn't allow even the tiniest particle of photon to escape. We can't see this. But for a moment, that negative dark matter all of a sudden diminished. And there was an explosion of spiritual light. And they saw and felt all of this. It's called revelation. It has nothing to do with people with silly little wings clipped onto them and some kind of mist uh, floating behind them like they depict in Hollywood. This is uh, something we don't understand. But they were giluyim, very, very lofty experiences. And that was preceded by a series of extraordinary moments and experiences. You had, for example, the gilui, shahoya biyatsiyas mitzrayim. Many miracles that occurred were not just the physical phenomenon that, 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 that bent or was vaporized in any of the ten plagues, but they actually saw and felt God's presence. It was palpable. Ubefrat, especially, this is true, Bikriyas Yamsov, at the time of the crossing of the Reed Sea. We are told that the crossing of the Reed Sea could be metaphorized as what later prophets experienced during the height of their exalted consciousness. Our sages tell us that what the simplest of members of Am Yisrael experienced was more profound than the highest revelation experienced by the prophet Ezekiel. So there was not only water ripped apart, not only the miracle of dry land, not only the miracle of trees and fruits that miraculously grew and flowered along the way, there was actual prophecy, an awareness of God's presence, which is imminent and ever-present, but never seen or felt by us. And the Jewish people walking through the Reed Sea actually experienced that. 
So this is amazing. Very lofty times. And then we know that all of that paled in comparison with what they experienced standing round the mountain called Sinai. The revelation that they experienced at the time of the Torah's giving was even loftier, even greater. I, of course, have no idea what I'm talking about. How could I? But it was amazing. So suppose a person never heard music before. And then suddenly, miraculously, their ears have opened. And they're hearing a beautiful song, a lone guitar, a single clarinet. And it's enchanting. It's uplifting. It tugs at the strings of their very soul. And then another few instruments are added to the mix. And then there are vocalists at it. And as the music becomes more sophisticated, as the synergy continues to expand, so imagine how that multiplies. And the experience is ever so much more powerful. You go from hearing a single instrument to 101 strings, a grand symphony. Imagine being blind, never having seen, we couldn't even imagine such a thing. And then you're allowed to see something, a very faint, monochromatic kind of vision. Just one color, but just with a little bit of shadowing. Just enough to allow you to see or perceive depth or distance. And then that becomes sharper, moves into high definition. And then it becomes two color and eventually full color. And you're just blown away by what you've experienced. It was impressive when you could see anything, a glimmer, and now you're seeing vibrant, brilliant, lit up colors. Well, this is something like that which experienced, was experienced by our ancestors, something like that. Which is of course a pale and lame metaphor, but gives us some understanding, some appreciation of what was experienced. And yet, despite all of this, we say that that was just the beginning. That was good. That, that was, uh, it was real. It was a tangible expression of, of our loyalty. Yes, we really did love Hashem. We were going to be devoted. And our dedication was indeed appreciated. But that's just the beginning. And in the days of the evil empire that had formally passed legislation to enable and encourage the massacring, the annihilation of the entire Jewish people in one day. We, the Jewish people, at this time, were in the nadir of our national experience. It's the lowest ebb in history, if you will. And the Rebbe here, interestingly, explains to us that this has to be seen through the prism with a syntax of what we call galut, or exile. Exile is not only about being in a different geographic location. Exile is a state of mind. 
Exile is a frame of existence, one that profoundly obscures who you really are, disables your self-expression, your freedom to be yourself, and you find yourself um, inhibited, you find yourself shackled, you find yourself, in a sense, terrified into a corner. You're just barely existing. The Rebbe frames this with the notion that Galut, the term Galut, the term exile, from a Torah perspective, begins in Egypt. And we have this notion that Galut means Helem Vehester, a concealment, a, an obfuscation the way things should be because God is supposed to love Am Yisrael and that's supposed to be evident if it's true and in a Galut situation that's not seen, felt or noticed at all. In the, in the brackets the Rebbe says the Chol Galut, every exile we've ever experienced is bedugmas Golos Mitzrayim, is in the paradigm or image of the first Galut. The first Galut is the exile prototype. So what was Galut-like or exile-like in Mitzrayim? So for example, we only know really what the Torah tells us. The rest of it is conjecture. We can imagine how people felt. We can, we can kind of depict or illustrate what life might have been like, even basing it on the frames of other periods in Jewish history. But what we do know with certainty is what the Torah says, how the Torah describes Galut, and how does the Torah describe Galut. Very interestingly, this period of Galut, which is not necessarily about suffering or persecution. We have had golden periods during our Galut, and yet we've still remained in Galut. What is Galut? Galut. Galut means, as it says, about the exilic reality that we were experiencing in Egypt. Galut meant that there was a Jewish people who was introduced to the greatest Rebbe of all time, Meshach Rabbeinu, and he performed a number of miracles, which probably was accompanied by more than just the physical phenomena, but probably those symptoms enabled them to sense the godly energy that is really available, just not seen. And then Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses himself, the transparent Moses. He's like, he's like translucent glass. You, you feel and know the presence of God through this man. You're not, you, don't, you don't feel Moses when you speak to Moses. You feel God when you speak to Moses. Because that's what Moses is able to do to you. He's able to somehow awaken from within you your own dormant feelings for God, your own latent spiritual potential. And yet despite the fact that they were standing in front of Moshe Rabbeinu and they were listening to Moshe Rabbeinu speak because of the exile's impact, it says, they didn't listen to him. I mean, they heard him, but they couldn't listen to him. As they say in Yiddish, they heard the sounds of his voice, but it meant nothing to them. 
So they couldn't absorb Moshe Rabbeinu's message. And it is stated in the Torah, this was mikoitzer ruach, from proverbially speaking shortness of breath, kasha, and out of the pressures brought to bear by the terrible workload that was placed upon them. In other words, what Galut did for the Jewish people was entirely demoralize them and rob them of their humanity. They could no longer function as normal people. And when I say normal people, I'm not talking about biological, terrestrial, technical, material, fleshy needs. They, their souls couldn't be stimulated. Their spirituality suddenly became so shriveled, so obscured, so obfuscated that things, the normal stimuli, which would technically or typically bring forth a profusion of spirituality, wasn't working. You know, um, I once heard this from Rabbi Lau Sr. In fact, when he was here in our community a couple of years ago and he spoke Friday night, he told the following story. It was the story of the redemption of his humanity, of when he felt human again. He was, he was really uh, taken into the, the, the custody of the sadistic Nazi war machine as a child. He lost his family, his mother, his father. One brother left, and he never cried. Starved, beaten, dehumanized. He didn't cry. He said they were incapable of expressing human emotion. They were severely diminished as human beings. And the normal stimuli, things that stimulate human emotion or human expression or human reaction, wasn't working for them. They were like the walking dead. He tells the story of how they were in a displaced person's camp of sorts for children. And there was this, this wonderful woman who cared for them. And a group of donors who came from, I think, the joint or some other formal body. And, and they were supposed to address these child survivors and the children didn't want to come. Their sentiment was like, now they care about us. Where were they? And she pleads with them to come. She begs them to come and almost to do her a favor because she was so kind to them. They begrudgingly show up, but they, they decide not to look at the speakers. And so the speakers are addressing these child survivors still have shaven heads and the children all put their heads down and all you can see is their shaven heads. And he talks about how one person, I don't remember if it was that woman or, some, or, or a man who loved them very much, got up and, and wanted to speak to them but was overwhelmed with emotion. And he said, Kinderlach. It's an affectionate Yiddish expression for children, kinderlach. And he couldn't continue. He burst into tears. And Rav Lau said that one boy started to cry. 
And all of a sudden, it had this domino effect of these children who hadn't cried in years. All of a sudden, the pent-up emotion came to the surface, and they all began to cry. And there was the awful wailing of dozens or maybe hundreds of children screaming at the top of their lungs, cries that were a catharsis, enabling them to almost to cast off the, the scars that had shriveled them and like raw flesh bursting open, and the pain that was being expressed. And he described this in a way that really only he can. Many people in the room were crying when he was speaking. And he said that they became human again after. So we understand human emotion. We understand the meaning of people who would be moved by things and then people who could be negatively impacted by an experience. The sight of death would sicken a normal human being. When soldiers come back from war, they are oftentimes scarred because of the volume of death that they saw. Sometimes those scars cut very deeply. They lacerate the persona and they remain persistent wounds. That's called post-traumatic stress disorder. You need some kind of catharsis. You need to get this out of your system. In a certain way, every medical practitioner leaves a tiny figment of his humanity at the door when he gets used to cutting open human beings and seeing blood and guts and gore. A normal human being recoils at the sight of somebody's innards. Medical practitioners, especially surgeons, are in doing so very heroic. They're making a huge contribution. They give away a little part of their humanity in order to help humanity. There are so many examples of things that happen to us which could inhibit or disable. Normal human, human functionality. You, you know people who, who had troubled childhoods and now who are scarred emotionally. So all of this can be seen as a metaphor for what we're talking about. Galut. The nature of Galut, the nature of the obfuscation of God's presence, the nature of us living without feeling or knowing God in any way, shape, or form, which ultimately has the external expression of oftentimes persecution. Or when it's not suffering, assimilation, apathy, disenchantment. Yiddishkeit means nothing to me. That's Galut, my friends. And we see this because the Torah describes Galut, or the impact of Galut, as people hearing from the greatest prophet and not being moved. They can't even listen to him because they are proverbially, euphemistically speaking, short of breath because the heavy load of the tasks that they have been forced to perform have crushed their spirits and disabled them from functioning. That's Galut. So the Mimer says, that's what was going on at the time of Haman. Now think about this. If our spirits are crushed, if our souls are scarred, if we're not able to function normally, 
How would we suddenly experience a profusion of pride and faith in our Jewishness? How would we suddenly be ready to cast off the yoke of Galut and experience a reclamation of the glory of God in Yiddishkeit? Like, really, how would that happen? I'm not sure. But the Mimer illustrates and depicts for us how remarkable of an event it was. And before the Mimer illustrates it, you, you don't even realize it. Most of us never stop to think about that, that nature of that extraordinary thing, that, that ex, that, or the extraordinary nature of what happened. That people who were assimilated and apathetic, people who saw vessels of the Beis Migdash ate pork off it and or lobster and it, it meant nothing to them. They saw the equivalent of a Taurus girl being defecated upon and, and it was entertaining. For a normal, living, breathing Jew to see a Sefer Torah, no matter how disenchanted you are with Yiddishkeit, it pulls something out from within you. <laughs> there was a group of Jewish bikers went down south to Alabama, I think, to visit a school that had collected six million paper clips to try to visualize the number of lives snuffed out, murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. This is this documentary called Paper Clips. There was a number of members of our show that were actually on that trip and in the documentary. And I don't remember why. I think we may have shown it here in show. At any rate, there's one snippet which really, really, like, like talked to me, like, gave me like a, it, it, I found it inspiring. And it was, it was, you know, the, the, there are many scenes of these people who are proudly Jewish, but not necessarily Jewishly observant. And parts of the film show them eating things you, I wish I wouldn't see them eat and driving on days they're not really supposed to be driving. But anyway, the, the film ends at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And... And somebody has a little Torah scroll. So the biker is zipping by on his motorcycle. And as they're coming by, one of the bikers, who seems to be a very gruff uh, kind of individual, not somebody you would expect a profusion of uh, spirituality from, he's suddenly swearing like a sailor, like, how the blankety blank can I stand here when a Torah is going to ride by? I don't have a yarmulke on my head. And it was so raw so real, so beautiful. It's like you didn't expect to find spirituality right there. It was, it was, it was very genuine. That's a beautiful thing. So when people are very, very disenchanted and disinterested in Yiddishkeit, you don't expect to find Mesirat Nefesh. You don't expect to find a willingness or readiness to sacrifice everything for their Jewishness when they were prepared to abandon their Jewishness cold-bloodedly, chuckling along the way just a short while before. But that's what happened. So that's the nature of Galut. It's not just about the triumph of leaving Mitzrayim and the danger of having a target on your back. It's a spiritual mindset. It's two poles, two extremes within the frame of our Jewish experience. And yet... Hine Oz, pardon me, I skipped a line here. Just as we say they couldn't listen to Moshe because of shortness of breath, 
This is the paradigm of every exilic period or experience. There are tests of faith insofar as the study of Torah and the performance of mitzvahs are concerned. Hine, and behold, Oz, at that time, the, 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 the smoke screen, the obfuscation was profound and intense, almost absolute, a total eclipse of anything Jewish, of anything spiritual, of anything neshama oriented. And Afalpike, despite all of this, Bizman Matan Torah, at the time of the giving of the Torah, that the Jewish people were on top of their spiritual game, when they were most expressive, when they were most alive, when they were most passionate, when their souls were raging with a fiery love for God. That's a beginning. It was nice, but a beginning. They began to do it. At the time of the decree of Haman, when they were literally in the dust of the doldrums of Yiddishkeit disenchantment. And at that time, we say, that represents the affirmation, that represents the full acceptance of the mission, of the mantle that Hashem placed upon us. I mean, really, this, this begs for an explanation. It presents us with a tremendous question mark. When put in this way, when framed in this fashion, it doesn't even make sense. How could that have been? In the previous Rebbe, Speaking to this beleaguered Soviet jury, explains the Bizman Hagzeda at the time of the decree, there was no way to do a mitzvah unless you were prepared to pay a price. There was no way a person could publicly exhibit pride in his Jewishness without an act of sacrifice. There were paths available, but each with tremendous resistance. There was no easy path to take. You could lay down and die. <laughs> you could forget your Yiddishkeit. But if you were to walk any path of Yiddishkeit, there would be great resistance you would encounter. And you would need Mesirat Nefesh. You would need a readiness, a preparedness to pay a price. The Neisif Lazet. In addition to this notion, that it took an act of sacrifice, not to deny your Jewishness outright, heaven forfend. Notes, this is as explained in Torah on the Megillah. On page 91 of that part of Dasam, that if they were only to renounce their faith and their affiliation with Judaism, he would have backed away. This is not Hitler who was looking for a Mishling Jew three generations back who was not even halachically Jewish. This is Stalin, who said, if you will identify Jewishly, 
If you will claim that you are any different than any other Soviet citizen, then you will be persecuted to the nth degree. It is illegal for you to be engaging in any kind of divisive religious activities, all of which are deemed to be counter-revolutionary. The revolution came to save humanity. The revolution came to erase the disparities that have plagued humanity. All hate comes from religion, he said. Sound familiar? All of the bad things are induced by religion. We will stamp out religion once and for all, and then we will all be equal. And then we will live together in peace. And then the disparities embraced by the bourgeois and the people who are capitalists will become a thing of the past. As communism reigns uber alles. And of course, the greatest enemy for the Stalinist persecution was the Jewish religion. Make no mistake, he hated all religion. For all of ye who say that religion is the problem, it would help you to remember that in the 20th century, over a hundred million people, and that's a conservative estimate, were brutally massacred by atheists. The Nazis were atheists. The communists were atheists. From Hitler to Stalin Yamachmoy, from Pol Pot to Mao Zedong, atheists, avowed atheists, seeking to stamp out soul, conscience, and religion. Hitler paid some lip service to, to Christianity to try to whip up and get support from the local Lutheran ministers, but make no mistake, he was an avowed atheist. So these people wanted to stamp out religion, remove the presence of God. And of course, as the Torah clearly says, who represents God more so than the Jewish people? No one. No offense intended, but that's what the Torah says. Our sages very clearly state that the anti-Semites, those who hate the Jewish people, ultimately hate God. And they manifest their hate for God with hate for the Jewish people. But unlike Hitler, who was looking for some kind of genealogy, Haman, like Stalin, was looking for Jewish identity. He was looking for Jewishness. He was looking for people who would identify and affiliate we have no record of Jewish people during the period of Purim saying, I'm out. I'm not part of this people. <laughs> I belong to any other ethnicity other than the Jewish faith. So in addition to the sacrifice that they had to have just to identify Jewishly, Afalpikin, it says, It wasn't on Yisraelim, it wasn't on the nation of Israel, it was on the Jewish people. And the Jewish people in antiquity were a description for those who remained loyal religiously. Yehuda means to be in a state of of acknowledgement before Hashem. That's what the Gezerah was leveled against. Afalpikin, and nonetheless, despite the fact that even identifying Jewishly, could cost you your life. Nobody thought, hey, there's a way out of this. I'd love to be Jewish, but I'd rather be alive, so. I will no longer affiliate with that. 
So in addition to the sacrifice they had even to identify as Jewish, in addition to this, we are told, furthermore, that they exhibited actual sacrifice, also for actual fulfillment of Torah study and mitzvah practice. And so much so to the point, that they congregated publicly, not private expressions of love and loyalty in a faith context, public expressions, like the Soviet Jewry, who would mass outside the synagogues on the night of Simcha's Torah. Celebrating what? They didn't really know. But they were Jewish, knowing full well that the KGB was there watching and documenting, that it could cost them their degree, or it could cost them sometimes their job. You might even be risking your life. Why do that? And yet they did. And this, my dear friends, is exactly what happened in the time of Purim. How did it happen? Who stimulated that? Who fanned those flames so that the embers would burn brightly? At the time of Purim, the awakening of the dormant spirit of sacrifice. Fanning the flames of the resilient energy of the holy neshama of the soul of Am Yisrael was Mordechai. As we mentioned in the previous segment, the Moshe of his generation. And this is the meaning of Now we have fully explained and unpacked the profundity of the previous Sabbath's teaching. In saying this is the meaning then of the Jewish people accepted or received that which they had begun to do. At the time of Matan Torah, although a time of great love and great fervor, great passion, great spirituality, but a time in which there was no obstacle there was no path of resistance. There was nothing that stood in your way. No sacrifice was required during the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. But when there was a, a need, a requirement to pay a price, then the Yiddishkeit became ever so much meaning, more meaningful. As things were dark, the points of light suddenly glowed with such intensity at the time of the decree, that represented the real acceptance. By virtue of the fact that they actually made the sacrifice. Not the person says, well, I'm willing to make a sacrifice. No, thank God I don't have to. No, they, they actually made the sacrifice. For the observance the study of Torah and performance of mitzvahs. Nis'alu, the Inyan Zeh, they were elevated only in this, from this dimension. They weren't at a more exalted spiritual state. They weren't in, in a closer position to Hashem, certainly not experientially. But in this element, they were higher, the Madrega Nailasyesa, to a higher standing. than they were at the zenith of our nation's spiritual saga. And therefore, 
That's what we call was the real acceptance. That's the Vikibal Hayahudim. So now that we've, we understand the previous Rebbe's teaching about the uniqueness of faith on the fire and the sacrifice, the spiritual sacrifice that was made becoming an expression that's more profound than during times of spiritual luxury, times when it's, rel relatively speaking, easy to be an observant Jew. So, it would seem, and I refer you to the previous segment, that the interpretation of the meaning kosis crushed lamoir, so that the source of illumination within our souls is laid bare. That as we explained in the previous segment, through the virtue of the crushing circumstances, the oppression, the persecution brought to bear upon Am Yisrael, Nizhbar v'nitka crushes or pulverizes the, the external shell, the outer trappings, and Magiyim. Through that, we reach Moir, the source of illumination, who beer is an explanation, al that at the time of the decree, Dafke, Nefesh, they were able to reach or express a, a, a devotion, a dedication to Hashem that was more profound by virtue of the fact that they made a sacrifice for it. Because this expression of commitment in the face of any price that has to be paid. Shalomayla Megilli comes from Etzim from the very essence of the soul, which is loftier than the revelatory expressions of the soul. What's called Mo'or, it's called source, rather than rays or effulgence. Shemimenu Nimtzahar, that's where the rays come forth. The radiance of the soul is the experiences of the neshama. The core essence of the soul is the catalyst. What causes those experiences? So in a time of plenty, you're basking in the glow of your neshama. You're enjoying your Yiddishkeit. You're studying Torah. You're performing mitzvahs. You're identifying and affiliating with the creator of heaven and earth. You're nurturing a meaningful relationship on God's terms. And that's great. But the core essence of the soul isn't felt because we're bathed in the glow of the external radiance. But in a time when there isn't much radiance to speak of, and when there's a need for real sacrifice, that cuts to the chase, strips away all of the outer layers, removes the dross and whatever kind of filth had attached itself to the outside of the neshama. And now, the core, <laughs> the very essence of the neshama, has been laid bare. Because they were in that pressed, that intense persecution and the terrible nature of that situation, the core essence of the soul suddenly expressed itself. But the Rebbe highlights, and we'll conclude as we did the previous segment, but from the order of how this is framed in the previous Rebbe's Mimer, that the interpretation and the meaning of the word kosis comes after the explanation 
of that proverbial shepherd of faith ideal, mashma it seems, the Indian kosis lamoyer, that the notion of crushed to the point that the core essence is revealed, shayich dam is also related to this notion, shemoyshe, zon umefarnes es that Moshe, there is a tzaddik, there is a Rebbe who is nurturing the faith so that the faith suddenly reveals itself. He is fanning the flames so that the glow of the embers becomes a roaring flame, a fire of faith. And again, the issue here is which is it? Did the Jewish people experience this profoundest expression or profusion of faith because of the circumstances that necessitated sacrifice Mesidas Nefesh? Or did the Jewish people experience this profusion of piety and faith because somebody was fanning the flames, because somebody was nurturing their faith, namely the generational Moshe? Was it the charisma of his spiritual leadership? Was it the force of his spirit that somehow touched and stimulated and awakened the pintaliyid, the inner spark of Jewish spirituality? Or was it the circumstances? <laughs> was it the challenge of the times that brought forth that spark of Jewishness, turning it into a roaring flame? This is the question that we will continue to address during the study of this minor. Thank you so much for joining us till now, and I'll be back soon with the next segment.